Well, good morning. We're beginning a new series this morning called What's the Big Deal About Small Groups? Uh, we make a big deal about small groups around here. In fact, we like to say that we don't want to be a church with small groups. We want to be a church of small groups. So if you're not a part of a small group, we will continue to challenge you to do so because we don't see this as something that is optional. We see it as essential. And I want you to look for a moment with me at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have the birth of the church, and in one day, they went from 120 people to over 3,000 people, and we get a snapshot of the church in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and I just love this picture. I want you to look at it just briefly with me. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you notice the extent of their involvement? Everyone, everything, every day. Everyone giving up everything every day. And they met in the temple and from house to house. They had large group meetings. They had small group meetings. They had togetherness. They were sharing. They had joy. They had praise. There was a sense of awe. There was a sense of anticipation. People were getting saved every day. You see, the church from the very beginning is not a place. It's a people. They didn't even meet in the same place. They met in the temple. They met house to house to house. Church is not a place. It's a people. And God intends for us to do life together. And we believe small groups are the setting in which that can happen. So over, over the next three weeks, we're going to give you three reasons to be in a small group. We're going to highlight three things that happen in the context of a small group. And today I'm going to talk about life change. If you ask me what my goal is for each one of you, it would be this. That you have a deep, penetrating, vibrant, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That's my prayer for you. That you would be so overwhelmed that he loves you this much. So awestruck by the reality that he gave his life for you to forgive you, to make you God's child, to give you forever life. That your reaction would be, I want to give him my all. Everyone, everything, every day. My desire for you and my desire for me is that we would have a deep, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I realize when I say that, that I used a dangerous word. In the Christian vocabulary, it's a little dangerous to use the word deep. Because I think we have a wrong concept of what is deep. We think of deep as an adjective to describe a preacher. He was deep. Or his message was deep. Now, when we say that, what do we mean? Well, for some of us, deep means intellectual. He used the Greek and the Hebrew, he even threw in some Latin. You know, he, he explained the history. He quoted writers I've never heard of. He used theological terms I can't define. He's deep. He must be deep. I didn't understand a word he said. And oftentimes we associate deep with knowledge and stop right there. In Jesus' day, who had the most knowledge of the Bible? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who crucified Jesus. You see, knowledge is not depth. For other people, deep means emotional. Someone tells a story and he tears up, and so you start to tear up. So you say, well, that was deep. Or someone gives an enthusiastic, moving message, and you're challenged, you're motivated, you're excited, and you say, that was deep. Well, if deep is an emotion, then a cardinal playoff game is deep. If deep is an emotion, then two-year-olds are deep. You see, emotion is not maturity. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want to be emotional about the right things. And I want to be knowledgeable about the right things. But those two things alone are not depth. What is depth? I think we need a paradigm shift. We need to switch the focus from the teacher to the receiver. 
You see, the question is not how deep is he. The question is, how deep am I? Not how deep is his message. How deep is my heart receiving that message? Jesus told the story of the sower. We're all familiar with it. Sower goes out to sow. He throws seed around. Some of the seed lands on the path. It's packed down from people walking on it. It, the, The seed cannot penetrate the path, and so the birds come and eat the seed. Some of the seed falls on rocky soil. That's not soil with just little rocks in it. It's like a rock ledge with a little bit of soil on top. And the seed penetrates and the plant grows up, but it has no depth of root. And so the sun comes out and scorches it, and it withers. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And then some seed fell on the good soil, and it produced a crop, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, why did only a quarter of the seed produce? Did the sower do a poor job? Who's the sower in that story? God. What's the seed? The Word of God. They all heard the same message. What's the issue? It's the quality of the soil, or as Jesus says, the quality of the heart. It's how soft is the heart to receive the Word implanted. Jesus told another story about two men who built houses. One built his house on the sand. The other built his house on the rock. The flood came, knocked down the house on the sand, and the house on the rock stood Now, was Jesus just giving construction advice? Or was there a point to that story? Here's the point. In fact, let me tell you this. The the fellow who built on the rock in Luke chapter 6, it says he dug down deep and laid his foundation on the rock. And Jesus says this, the one who hears my words and does them, is like the one who dug down deep and built on the rock. And the one who hears my words and does not do them is like the man who built his house on the sand. Here's the point. Depth is not measured by knowledge. And depth is not measured by emotion. Depth is measured by by obedience. Depth equals obedience. Depth is not simply understanding the Word of God. Depth is not simply getting emotional about the Word of God. Depth is applying the Word of God. In fact, let me say this. Information without application is dangerous. If you're not going to apply the Word of God, you're better off not to hear it. Because information without application is dangerous. 
Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge alone makes you arrogant. Knowledge alone will fill you with pride. So information without application equals sin. James 1.22 tells us that people who hear the word and don't do it delude themselves. And James gives an illustration there. He says, if you hear the word and don't do it, you're like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and walks away and forgets what kind of man he is. I'm going to date myself here, but uh, <clears throat> I grew up watching Happy Days. And uh, if you can find old episodes of Happy Days, the, the, the guy in there, the Fonzie, he's the guy everybody wanted to be like. He was the cool guy. And Fonzie would always go into the bathroom and he would look in the mirror, look at himself in the mirror, and he'd pull his comb out. And if you watch every episode, you'll find that he never used his comb. He looked in the mirror and he liked what he saw. So he put his comb up and walked away. I used to like mirrors. And you go in and go, well, not bad. Now it's like damage control. Let's just go in and, what's falling apart now? Earlier this week, I had a red nose. I looked like Rudolph. I spent a lot of time this week in front of the mirror putting different creams on there trying to get rid of my red nose so you wouldn't notice it. Um, this may be too much information, but, you know, I've lost all my hair. But it's strange that I have hair growing in weird places. <laughs> and my wife will tell you, I have a hair that grows right on the tip of my ear. It's the fastest growing hair I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I've got to watch it because, I mean, it'll be two inches long. And my wife will say, whoa, whoa, let me get that. And then she yanks it, and it hurts. The purpose of a mirror is to give you knowledge about your physical condition so that you can apply that knowledge. And the purpose of the Word of God is to give you knowledge about your spiritual condition so that you can apply that knowledge. And James says, when you don't apply it, you delude yourself. Now, sometimes we think we're deluding other people. We're not. If you're a spiritual Fonzie, and you look in the Word of God and go, no, I'm good. Everybody can see you except yourself. You're the one. You're deceiving. Can I be transparent with you today? My problem is not information. I have spent, on average, 25 hours a week for the last 35 years studying the Word of God. 
I have a lot of information. I have volumes of information. See, I don't have an information problem. I have an application problem. Jesus said, when someone asks you to go one mile, go two. And I don't want to do that. Jesus said, deny yourself and pick up your cross every single day. And I don't want to do that. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you. And I don't want to do that. See, I don't have an information problem. The Bible says we're to consider others more important than ourselves. I know that verse. In fact, I've got it memorized. But I don't want to consider others more important than me. The Bible says flee youthful lust, and sometimes I want to hang around or walk away. See, most of us know enough to live out the rest of our lives. If our government took our Bibles away today, we would know enough to walk out the rest of our lives. See, our problem is we have an application gap between what we know and what we're doing. So how do we address that problem? Well, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. I'm not going to go into great detail in this passage, but what I want to do is pick out four things out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, that will help us be doers of the Word. Four tools to go deep in your heart, kind of like a, a shovel, a rake, a pick, a hoe. Four tools to help you go deep in your heart. Tool number one, it's in your bulletin, is the love of God. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart. The word I want to focus on is that word beloved or beloved. Now, we're prone to get hung up on the words chosen and holy and say, I want to go deep intellectually. What does that mean? How does that work? And when we get hung up on those kind of words, we miss the word that wants to go the deepest, and that's this word, beloved. You are God's beloved. I remember exactly where I was in Denver, Colorado. When that reality dawned on me, it was like a light coming on that God loves me. And that penetrated my heart. That melted my hard heart. And I reciprocated because the Bible says we love because what? He first loved us. When his love penetrated my heart, my only response was to love him back. 
And that was revolutionary for me. Now, I knew this truth, but I hadn't embraced this truth. On the truth of God's word, I can say this to you today. God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. And when that truth comes to light in your life and penetrates your heart, it's life-changing. He's not mad at you. He's mad about you. He's so mad about you that he gave his son, and that love is unconditional. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's unconditional love. You can't do anything to make him love you more. And you can't do anything to make him love you less. B.B. Warfield was one of the great theologians and Bible scholars, and he was once asked, what's the greatest truth you've ever learned? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's it. It's the first song a little child learns, and it never changes. It's the greatest truth you'll ever learn. God loves you. So before we go on, let me ask you this. Has that penetrated your heart? How deep has that gone into your heart? Because when that goes deep into your heart, it is life-changing. Second tool, the people of God. Notice verse 12 again. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Here are the qualities you want to dig down deep to have planted in your heart. You want to measure depth? Here's the yardstick. Compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, loving each other. What is the common denominator between all these qualities? They all happen in community. They all occur when we're interacting with one another. You see, you can't be deep if you never come out of your closet. Depth happens life on life. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And when iron goes against iron, what happens? Sparks sometimes fly. But it's productive. 
Let me put it this way. We don't grow deep in rows. We grow deep in circles. You can get information in rows, but application comes in circles. You say, but Dan, if I get in a small group, then people will get to know me. And that's going to be a problem. Because I've got flaws. Well, everyone is flawed. I mean, our, I know our staff well. Our staff is flawed. Andy Callis, flawed. <laughs> Jeremy Colleen, you leave your children with him over there? Flawed. Jeff's up here with a guitar, with his eyes closed, singing. Flawed. You see, flawed is a given. In fact, flawed is a prerequisite to be in a small group. Because if you're perfect, don't come in my small group, because you'll intimidate everyone. Flawed is a given because it says right here, We've got to be patient with one another. Why? Because we're, not hard to, we're hard to be around. We're not easy to live with. We've got to figure out how to bear with one another because some of us aren't easy to bear with. We've got to forgive one another. Why? Because we offend each other. That's the process of growth. I'm flawed. You're flawed. We're all flawed. Let's say that together. No. See, the issue that's keeping you from a small group is not that you're flawed. If you're honest, the issue that keeps you from a small group is your pride. And you've got to get past your pride to let people know the real you. And once you do that, you'll experience real relationships. Because then people can know the real you and love the real you rather than the fake you. It's hard to love the fake you. It's hard to love a mannequin. We've got to be real with one another. How does God love you anyway? How do others love you anyway? In fact, let me say this. What you consider your biggest failure of the past. God often wants to take and use as your greatest asset today. What you consider your biggest failure of the past, God wants to use as your greatest asset in the present. And often he wants to use that in the life of someone else. Your experience with a failed marriage, your experience with addiction, 
your experience with an abortion can greatly help and encourage someone else. But you've got to be humble and honest enough to bring it to the light and let God use it in someone else's life. But not only is it helpful for other people, it's actually helpful for you. There's a verse in James chapter 5 and verse 16. You may have overlooked it, but here's what it says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We confess to God to be forgiven. We confess our sins to others to be healed. Think about that. There's power in relationships. There's healing in relationships. Some of you are trying to figure out how to grow in your relationship with God. And you're neglecting one of the key elements of that process. And that's the involvement of other Christians in your life. There is no maturity without community. Let me say that again. There is no maturity without community. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. You weren't just called as an individual. You were called as part of one body. Now, our Western culture ingrains in us that we should be individuals, that we should be isolationists, that we should depend on no one but ourselves, that everything is about me. It's me, me, me. And many Christians adopt that same uh, sort of scenario for their Christian life. And they make it all about me. And so a Christian goes through life, and what's his theme song? Me and Jesus got our own thing going. And then when you talk about the future, you think about, you know, someday I'm going to get a mansion in heaven, and I'm hoping for about 80 acres, and I'm going to fence it all off and put no trespassing signs. Listen, Christianity is not about living life alone with God. Not now and not forever. It has to be a personal relationship, yes, but it also has to be a corporate relationship. Let me read you a verse out of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I said a verse, it'll be 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God isn't saving a person. He's saving a people. 
And he's not just forming you, he's forming us as we relate to one another. Paul spends a lot of time on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this whole idea of one body. And he says, we're many members, but we have one body. And he uses some kind of jokes in there where he talks about how if the, the, the foot says, well, if I'm not a, a, a hand, then I'm not important to the body. Or if the, the eye says I'm not an ear, I'm not important to the body. It's kind of like when you, when you have an usher out here, a greeter, and he says, well, if I'm not a small group leader, so I'm really not important. It's that same idea. And Paul uses the analogy. He says, well, if everybody did the same thing, we would be one big eyeball. We wouldn't be a body at all. See, God loves diversity. And God loves unity. We are diverse. We are unique. We have a special gift. We have unique experiences. There's no one else like you. You are a spiritual snowflake. But we are all united in the body of Christ. Let me try something with you. Humor me on this. Pick your right foot up and move it clockwise. Now, if you're young, you don't even know what clockwise means because you've never seen a clock. It it works like I'm talking about. So you're digital. So that means hold it up and go to the right. Like that. It's hard for me to do up here, but I'm an athlete. All right, while you're doing that, take your right hand. And make a six. Okay. I discovered that this week and had to work it in. So that's... that's, uh. My point is this. Your, Your foot and your hand are very different. But they're connected. You don't even know how they're connected, but they're connected. And they're to work in harmony with one another. See, the church is not a building. The the church is not a box to sit in. The church is a movement that we are a part of. I love Jesus' words when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower. What are gates for? You close the gates, it's defense. What's that tell us? Hell is on the defensive. So as a church, we're not playing defense. We are playing offense. We are taking back territory. We are storming the gates and delivering captives out of darkness into light. And the Bible tells us we are destined to win. And what I want you to grasp is this. The battle is corporate. And the victory is corporate. Listen to these two verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Gives us the victory, plural. Plural. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 4. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Plural. We battle together. 
and we win together. God is not calling a person. God is calling a people. He is raising us up as representatives to be salt and light in this world. And do you know what makes the gospel most believable? You say it's my clever illustrations when I tell people. It's my deep knowledge. No. You know what makes the gospel most believable? Listen to Jesus' prayer the night before he goes to the cross in John 17, 21. Praying for you, he said, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. His prayer is that you would be one, that you would be unified in love so that the world may believe that you sent me. When the world sees love lived out in our relationships, when the world sees our unity and our oneness, the gospel becomes believable. You see, we're just better together than we could ever be apart. Third tool, the Word of God. Verse 16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice that phrase, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. In other words, let it go deep. Now, the Word of God is a great tool because the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will cut and divide between even the thoughts and intentions of your heart. The Word of God can cut your heart wide open. You know, sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time when I preach, I'm limited. Because I can teach you the Word of God, but if I say something that's confusing, you can't really ask questions. Now, I guess you could, but that would be awkward. And if I say something that's challenging or convicting, you may sit there and nod and go, Amen. Amen. And then you go out, and because this is a passive place, a crowd is a passive setting, you go out and you don't apply it. Because, see, there's no accountability in here. You can say amen as loud as you can and go out and not apply the truth. But where is the truth applied? It's applied in relationships. It's applied in small groups. And when Paul says this, he's talking not about a large group, he's talking about a small group because he says, I want you to teach and admonish one another. That's interacting about the Word of God. Teaching is positive, admonishment is negative. Teaching is telling you the truth, admonishment is confronting you when you're out of line with the truth. And even the idea here that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, I think, has the idea of psalms. When you read the psalms, they're always written from David's experiences. 
And so I think what he's saying is not simply that we speak or sing the psalms, but that we share psalms of our lives with other people. Here's my testimony of how God worked in my life. Here's my psalm about how God brought me through that situation. And we teach and we admonish one another. Now let me add a precaution. A small group to be life-changing has to be centered on the Word of God. I was in a small group once that um, we watched episodes of Andy Griffith. Nothing wrong with Andy Griffith. I kind of like the guy. But to come together as a small group and watch episodes of Andy Griffith and try to draw some kind of truth out of that is a pretty low bar when we've got the Word of God. You see, we're to be teaching and admonishing one another with the Word of Christ. And if you've been in a small group, maybe you've been in a small group and you said it didn't work very well because all we did was socialize and all people did was reinforce my lifestyle rather than confront my lifestyle. See, if I want reinforcement, I'll go to a bar. I need somebody who will confront me to tell me not what I want to hear, but what I need to hear. And the Bible says the best way that happens is when we speak the truth in what? Love. Now, I can walk up to one of you that I don't even know and tell you the truth, but it's going to be hard for you to receive. But if I've been with you in small group, if I walked with you through life, if you've seen my love and we've experienced that relationship, then I can come to you and I can speak the truth in love because that is the foundation of my words. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband killed. Some time went by, he married her. Life seemed wonderful, although from the Psalms we know that David was getting eaten up inside while he was carrying on the facade. A guy named Nathan came up to him stuck his finger in his face and said, you're the man. Not in the good way we use that phrase today. You're the man who stole another man's lamb and killed it. And David repented. And it was life-changing for David. And what do we read about David. He was a man after God's own heart. You say, but he had major flaws. Yeah, we all do. But he was a man after God's own heart. And he can attribute that to a guy named Nathan who loved him enough to confront him. Now fast forward to David's son Solomon. He's also the king of Israel. He starts to fall into sin. The Bible says he married 700 wives. They were foreign wives who led his heart astray from God. And when you read the account of Solomon, you never find that he had a Nathan. 
I mean, you would think after maybe 300 wives, somebody would say, hey, pal. There was nobody. Nobody loved him enough to stand in his way and say, you're going the wrong direction. And as a result, God disciplined him and took the kingdom away from him. And when Solomon was an old man, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's what he says in chapter 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Solomon wasn't writing from experience because no one helped him up. He was pitying himself because he fell and he had no relationship of accountability where anybody could help him up. If the wisest man on the earth in his day needed accountability, I think we do too. Do you want to go deep? You need this tool. You need the Word of God spoken to you through a loving, caring friend. Fourth tool. Last tool. The example of Jesus, verse verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now notice that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus. What's that mean? Christopher Columbus claimed the new world in the name of Queen Isabella. What does that mean? He was representing her. He was doing what she would have done if she had been here. So to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus is to act the way he would want us to act. Now, I already admitted that I don't always like to do what God wants me to do. Am I alone? You know, if I had my preference, I would get a recliner, a remote, ice cream. That's what I want. You know, just to hunker down, that's it. Watch football all day. But I'm challenged to follow the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do? When he was in the garden, what did he say? I don't want to do this. He he was in the shadow of the cross and realized all that it was going to cost him. And in his humanity, he shrunk back from that and he said, I I don't really want to do this. If there's any other way, I don't want to do this. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus left us the example. When I'm called to do something I don't want to do, I say, ultimately, your will be done. 
Now, we could spend several weeks on this one verse, so I feel bad about doing this, but I just want to pull out one more thing in closing from the example of Jesus. Jesus had a small group, right? Jesus had a small group. He walked with these guys, 12 guys, for three and a half years. And he had the three guys that he took on special occasions to special places. In fact, in the garden, when Jesus was praying, I don't want to do this, he had his three inner circle guys there. Now, they were flawed because they were supposed to be praying and they fell asleep. But he had a small group. Jesus set the example. He had a small group. Do you have a small group? Will you say today, I'm going to follow his example and I'm going to join with the people of God in a small group of accountability? I'm going to be willing to lovingly admonish those people and be admonished by them. And in that context, I'm going to embrace God's love and I'm going to demonstrate it to other people. God has called you on a journey and he doesn't intend for you to walk alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the reminder that you haven't just called us individually. You have called us collectively. You're not just shaping me. You're shaping us. And that happens in relationships. And Father, we pray today that you would challenge us to make ourselves vulnerable. To to overcome our pride and our apathy. To say, yes, I'm going to be involved with other people And I'm going to grow in that context and I'm going to be a minister of your love and grace to those people. And Father, as a result, I want to be able to look back down the road and be pleased that I invested in small groups because you've made that difference in my life. And we'll be careful in all of that to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.